Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? Friends, I believe this is the most important question that we will respond to in this life. Although it didn't originate with him, C.S. Lewis popularized the statement that Jesus was either a liar or a lunatic or the Lord. He was pointing out that Jesus either, one, deceived all of mankind by conscious fraud, two, he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or three, he was divine. When you read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, his ministry, and message, you're forced to walk away with one of these three beliefs. If Jesus claimed to be God, which he did, and then turned out not to be, then he must be a lunatic. If he's neither God nor a lunatic, then he must be a liar. But if he is neither of these, then he must be God. Jesus was either a liar or a lunatic or the Lord. So who do you say that Jesus is? Today we're beginning a new series called This Is Him. Over the next several weeks, we're going to work our way through Luke chapters 3 and 4, learning more about who Jesus really is. Each week we'll read a passage that clearly speaks to Jesus' identity. It was the famous French general, Napoleon Bonaparte, who once said, If Socrates would enter the room, we should rise and do him honor. But if Jesus Christ came into the room, we should fall down on our knees and worship him. Dr. Luke would have agreed with Bonaparte, because in these two chapters, he makes it clear that Jesus is Savior, Messiah, and Lord. I'm so excited to read these passages with you as we see different people all declaring that Jesus is Lord. For this first message, we're going to start with Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. I'll read this passage in its entirety, and then we'll go back through and break it down into different sections. So Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It was now the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was the ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Iteria and Trachonitis. Lysanias was ruler over Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. At this time, a message from God came to John, son of Zechariah, who was living in the wilderness. Then John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching that people should be baptized to show that they repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. Isaiah had spoken of John when he said, He's a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. The valleys will be filled, the mountains and hills made level. The curves will be straightened, and the rough places made smooth. And then all the people will see the salvation sent from God. When the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, You brood of snakes, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you've repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, We're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Then the crowds asked, 
What should we do? John replied, If you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, Teacher, what should we do? He replied, Collect no more taxes than the government requires. What should we do? asked some soldiers. John replied, Don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon, and they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. John answered their questions by saying, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. John also publicly criticized Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, for marrying Herodias, his brother's wife, and for many other wrongs he had done. So Herod put John in prison, adding this sin to his many others. The last time we saw John, Mary had traveled to see her cousin Elizabeth, who is John's mother, and John leapt for joy, worshiping God from within Elizabeth's womb. Here, John is all grown up. In our weekly bulletin, there are three bold phrases, when he came, how he came, and why he came. In today's message, I'd like to break each of these phrases down from what we learn about John in today's passage. We'll start with the first phrase, when did John come on the scene? This is when he came. When John appeared on the scene, no prophetic voice had been heard in Israel for about 400 years. John's ministry was part of God's perfect timing. In fact, everything that relates to Jesus' ministry, even the events leading up to his ministry, were always on schedule. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, But when the right time came, God sent his Son, born of a woman, subject to the law. And throughout his earthly ministry, we see Jesus saying things like, My time has not yet come. Everything Jesus did was part of God's perfect timing, and John's ministry, preparing the way for Jesus, was part of God's perfect timing as well. In the first two verses, Luke names seven different men, including a Roman emperor, a governor, three rulers who were each in charge of one-fourth of the area, and two Jewish high priests. But God's word wasn't sent to any of these men. Instead, God's message and the ministry of preparing the way for the Messiah was given to a humble Jewish prophet who dressed funny and ate weird food. At just the right time, John the Baptist was sent out. Let's look at the second phrase. How did John come on the scene? This is how he came. Luke chapter 3 verse 4 says, Then John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. So how did John come on the scene? Well, resembling the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament, both in personality and in the way that he dressed, John showed up preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God for forgiveness. John also had the privilege and the responsibility of announcing the arrival of the Messiah, in his commentary on Luke chapter 3, author Warren Wearsby notes that John did a lot more than just preach against sin. He also proclaimed the gospel. That Greek word for preached is what gives us our English word evangelize. 
If you jump down to verse 18, we read about how John announced the good news to the people. He proclaimed the good news. He preached the good news. He evangelized. John preached the gospel. He introduced Jesus as the Messiah and told people to trust in him. Some people thought that John was the Messiah, but he made it very clear that the one he was preparing the way for was so much greater than he was. So much greater that John didn't even feel worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. John was so grateful for the opportunity to introduce people to Jesus and then just get out of the way. I've heard it said that John was only the best man at the wedding. Jesus was the bridegroom. John's example should cause all of us to pause and reflect on our own attitude and approach to ministry. For example, do we serve for recognition so that others can see how great we are at whatever it is we're doing? Or do we serve to point other people to Jesus? Is ministry a burden? Or do we view it as a privilege and a source of joy in our lives? Is ministry just one hour every week that we can check off a long list of other tasks? Or is ministry a lifestyle? There's a lot that we can learn from John's approach to ministry. A unique aspect of his ministry was baptism. Now, baptism was nothing new to the people. Jews had baptized Gentile converts for a long time. But John baptized Jews. This is what is unique. It was unheard of. And for an explanation of why he did this, I want to draw your attention to Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. Now, we know that Luke is the author of his gospel as well as the book of Acts. These two books are meant to go together. So beginning in verse 1, it says, While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast, where he found several believers. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He asked them. No, they replied. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then what baptism did you experience? He asked. And they replied, The baptism of John. Paul said, John's baptism called for repentance of sin. But John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. As soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 5, explains that John's baptism looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, while Christian baptism today looks back to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. I'm not going to dive into Christian baptism today. I'll save that for next week's message. Next week, we're going to learn about Jesus' baptism and what baptism means for believers today. So how did John come on the scene? Well, he came preaching a message of repentance, pointing people towards the coming of the Messiah. As you can imagine, his message was met with mixed reviews. But that's usually what happens when you boldly speak the truth. Few people will hear the message and believe, while many people will hear the message and not believe. Well, let's take a look at this third phrase. Why did John come on the scene? This is why he came. Verses 4 through 20 give us three important illustrations that help us understand the ministry that God gave to John. This is the why behind the what. The first illustration is that John was a voice for God. He was a voice for God. We see this in Luke chapter 3, verse 4. It says, Isaiah had spoken of John when he said, He's a voice shouting in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. So John was like the herald who went before the royal procession to make sure the roads were ready for the king. Spiritually speaking, the nation of Israel was living in a wilderness of unbelief. 
Many of their religious leaders were corrupt. The faith of the people was all about rituals and tradition. God's people were lost. They desperately needed to hear a voice from God, and John was that faithful voice. It was John's responsibility to prepare the nation for the Messiah and then present the Messiah to them. His method was to rebuke their sins and announce God's salvation. Now you might be thinking, that sounds a little harsh and judgmental. That's typically how people respond today when someone else calls them out for living in sin. We label it as being judgmental, but we need to remember that without conviction, there can be no conversion. And true conviction should result in biblical repentance. That word repent means to change your mind about something and then to act on that change. It's recognizing that you're the one who's wrong and that God is right. John reminded the people that it wasn't enough to just live with regret and remorse for the sin in their lives. There had to be evidence of a changed mind and a changed life. John was the voice that God chose to use to bring the people back to him. Today, we have God's word, and it's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin. With that being said, I do believe that God still uses other people to speak the truth of his word into our lives. And instead of getting offended when someone gently points out the areas in your life that could potentially lead you away from God, you should learn to receive correction and welcome accountability. In fact, this is a healthy mark of a maturing Christian. The second illustration is that John was compared to a farmer. He's compared to a farmer. We see this in verse 9 as well as verse 17. So verse 9 says, Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. And then you jump down to verse 17. It says, He's ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he'll clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. So what is this all about? You know, this isn't language that we typically use today. Well, John was compared to a farmer who chops down useless trees and who winnows the grain to separate the wheat from the chaff. Now, a threshing area was a flat, usually paved outdoor surface where the farmers would separate the edible wheat from the chaff. And the chaff was the dry covering around the seeds or the grain. And why did John use language like this? Well, many of the Jews thought that they were destined for heaven simply because they were descendants of Abraham. It was a birthright. John's job was to remind the people about how God gets to the root of things. He gets to the motive of the heart. He separates the truth from the lie. God isn't impressed with empty religion that doesn't produce lasting fruit. The Bible teaches us how in the last judgment, the true believers, the wheat, will be gathered by God while the lost, the chaff, will be eternally separated from him. This is certainly not a popular message today. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has made a way for anyone to be saved, to be reconciled to him by grace through faith. So John can be compared to a farmer in how he prepared the people for the Messiah. The third and final illustration is this. John was a teacher of others. He was a teacher of others. We see this in verses 10 through 14. It says, The crowds asked, What should we do? And John replied, If you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, Teacher, what should we do? He replied, Collect no more taxes than the government requires. 
What should we do? asked some soldiers. And John replied, Don't extort money or make false accusations, and be content with your pay. John not only preached the good news publicly, but he also had a personal ministry to the people, showing them how to practice their new faith. He taught the people how to be selfless and how to share what they had with others. Christians are meant to be marked by generosity. He told the corrupt tax collectors to not collect any more taxes than what the government required. And people hated tax collectors because they were known for collecting more taxes from the people than what was required and then keeping the additional taxes for themselves. That's part of how they made a living. He told the Roman soldiers to be truthful and to be content with what they had. John didn't tell these people to quit their jobs, to sell their homes and relocate. Instead, he told them to live out their faith by doing their work honestly. What a lesson for us today. You see, regardless of what you do for income, most jobs can be a platform for you to live out your faith, doing your work honestly, pointing other people to Jesus through your words and actions. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, he took time to minister to regular people. He called a corrupt tax collector to follow him, and he even healed a Roman soldier's servant. His ministry knew no bounds. Today, God wants to use available and teachable men, women, and children as kingdom workers for him, reaching a confused and lost generation, a generation of people who desperately need Jesus. John not only preached the good news publicly, but he also had a personal ministry to the people, showing them how to practice their new faith. Ministry in the local church today should be the same. The Bible is for learning, but it's also for living. There has to be that application. God wants us to be thoroughly equipped so that we can be effective ambassadors for him as we minister to the people in our community, in our state, in our country, and around the world. John was faithful in his ministry as he worked to prepare the hearts of the people for the Messiah and then present the Messiah to them. He boldly proclaimed that Jesus is the Lord and the Son of God. Because John was bold with God's message and faithful in his ministry, he eventually found himself in prison for speaking out against and rebuking Herod Antipas for his adulterous marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife. He was imprisoned by Herod and then eventually beheaded. With that being said, he faithfully finished the work that God had given him. He prepared the people to meet the Messiah. In closing, I need to ask you an important question today. Are you being faithful with the work that God has given you? There's no greater privilege and responsibility than to serve God with your life. And for most people, that begins right in your own circle of influence. So are you being faithful with the work that God has given you? Acts chapter 20 verse 24 says, But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. This is the message that the Apostle Paul shared with elders in Ephesus. He was on his way to Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that tough times were ahead. It was going to be a rough road. But he said, My life is worth nothing unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. So friends, are you being faithful with the work that God has given you?